This is Pulse Points, an occasional podcast from the Indiana University School of Nursing featuring faculty, students, and staff making an impact where it matters most, in Indiana and around the world. In today's episode, we discuss caregiving and stroke survivors with Dr. Tamalyn Backus, Professor and Chair, Department of Science of Nursing Care. We're here today with Dr. Tamalyn Backus, Professor and Chair of the Department of Science of Nursing Care at the Indiana University School of Nursing. Welcome, Dr. Backus. Oh, thank you very much. My pleasure to be here. We want to talk a little bit about your work, which focuses on caregiving and some of your research. But could you start by talking to us about why caregiving is so important and what are the implications of caregiving now? Sure. Um, Family caregiving is a growing phenomenon, uh, particularly with our aging population. In fact, 43.5 million adult family caregivers provide care for someone aged 50 or older, according to the Family Caregiver Alliance. Um, So that's a lot of family members out there providing care. And uh, in today's healthcare system, the family caregiver really becomes more of the hidden patient. Uh, Most of the focus is on um, you know, uh, on the patients themselves uh, and managing their conditions. And many times the family member is uh, kind of left out of the loop and they're an integral part of care. Yeah, I love that phrase, hidden patient. So the caregiver burden we've heard a lot about, certainly in the news and the media and as the population gets older and as you pointed out, what is the nursing role in thinking about caregivers and patients, and how do nurses in practice generally straddle those, those sort of two, not competing, but oftentimes slightly different demands? Well, I think the nursing profession as a whole are probably most focused on the patient and the family and their environment. Um, so family caregiving is, is a very important phenomenon for nursing as a whole. In fact, it's one of the, it's been a priority for the National Institute for Nursing Research for some time. Uh, But in practice, I think that uh, nurses are um, sometimes strapped for time. They try to do what they can in terms of discharge planning. Um, I think they would like to spend more time with family caregivers, but sometimes in the the busyness of of everyday practice, it's difficult to really do a good job. Yeah. How did you get interested in caregiving as a researcher? Well, as a researcher, um, I was uh, actually providing care for stroke survivors in the clinical situation in the in the home setting. And uh, many of our stroke survivors that we provided care for uh, either had cognitive issues or uh, various forms of aphasia, so they couldn't speak. Um, so I spent a lot of time talking with the family members about their care, and, and, and it just occurred to me that nobody's really asking the family member how they're doing with their own health. Um, and so it really struck my passion that these are truly people who need uh, attention within our healthcare system. And, and what can we do to, to not only help caregivers uh, provide better care for patients, but what can we do as nurses to help family members take care of, of themselves? I've had a chance to look over some of your articles by by no means have I explored all of them. You have a, a long and, and distinguished history of scholarship. But in what, what I've seen, a couple of things really struck out at me, and, and maybe you can talk a little bit about. And one is the cost 
um, the not just financial cost, but the health cost of having caregivers not be supported, not only for stroke survivors, but also the caregivers themselves. Yeah. Uh, well, again, I'll go ahead and cite Family Caregiver Alliance again. Caregiver services were valued at $450 billion in 2009, um, which is uh, a, quite an increase from 2007. So really, I mean, as you look at the trends in current health care today, more and more uh, patients are being uh, pushed into the community under the care of family caregivers. Um, and so it's not only the, the economic costs of, you know, what it would cost, you know, the, that the family caregivers are absorbing, but it also has a lot to do with the family caregivers' lives and how many of them uh, have had to quit their jobs in order to provide care. Um, when you look at the economic costs of caregiving, there's many, many factors that go into that. Wow. Tell me a little bit about your research in particular, the task program, the pilot that you've completed, and the study that's currently underway. Okay, sure. Um, yeah, I was fortunate to receive funding from the National Institute for Nursing Research to develop and pilot test um, a program to help family caregivers of stroke survivors after discharge to the home setting. And uh, so I had initially uh, completed some qualitative research asking family members what their needs and concerns were. Um, so that data provided a rich framework from which to develop the intervention itself. And so it's an intervention program known as the Telephone Assessment Skill Building Kit delivered completely by telephone. And it addresses caregiver needs and concerns in five main areas. Information about stroke, the warning signs, and what to do if the family member has another stroke. Um, also managing emotions and behaviors of the stroke survivor because it's a huge life-changing event. Um, you know, fa uh, the stroke survivor can't do the things that they used to, and that can be very troubling. And then uh, the, pers the per uh, actual personal care issues because of the disability that stroke um, uh, often results in, uh, the instrumental care issues that have to do a lot with finances and transportation. Um, and then again, probably the most important aspect of our program is helping the family caregiver to balance or to take care of their own needs, to take care of their own health throughout this process. And it, and it is, uh, I have a colleague that recently had a parent with stroke and mm -hmm. survived the stroke, and it is a instantly life-changing event. I mean, Absolutely. the work it takes and the emotions that go in. Um, survivor emotions and behaviors tie, I am sure, very carefully to the uh, behaviors and emotions of the caregiver. Um, and tell me a little bit about how the intervention works. You know, the, and you said it's telephone-based. So mm -hmm. talk a little bit about what is it? Does a nurse call? Is it a, who, who's mm -hmm. doing the intervention and what happens? Yeah. Um, in the intervention itself, we uh, employ and train nurses to deliver telephone calls uh, to our family caregivers. But first, um, they receive a binder full of tip sheets um, that address all of the items on our caregiver needs and concerns checklist. So the nurse on the phone trains the caregiver how to go down through the checklist and select the needs that are most important to them, and then trains the caregiver how to prioritize their own needs, and then those are addressed during the call. Um, so instead of the nurse really delivering the content and the intervention, the nurses are really training the caregivers how to do it themselves 
themselves so that they can sustain that process even after the phone calls stop. So um, caregivers receive telephone calls weekly for eight weeks from a nurse. Again, during each call, the caregiver assesses, helps the care helps the caregiver assess what needs are most important to them and helps them find the information in the resource guide um, and then evaluates, um, you know, how their problems are progressing and, and uh, uh, further assistance that they need. And it's not only just content based on their needs and concerns. There are some skill building modules within the resource guide that the nurses train the caregivers to do. For example, uh, problem solving. How do they take their priority problem and do actual problem solving around that? How do they um, talk to healthcare providers about a particular problem when oftentimes the family caregivers sort of neglected in the room? Um, how do they manage, how do family members manage the stress of the stroke survivor? How do they manage their own stress? What are some stress management strategies? Those kinds of things. So it's not only the content of those areas of needs, but it's also giving them the tools that they need to problem solve and deal with their own stress over time. So your intervention through the pilot phase produced some extraordinary results, um, some great efficacy. Um, I think sometimes when we hear about interventions that seem common sense, like for example, including caregivers in you know, discussions with clinicians, we forget that in an evidence-based practice environment, we really need to prove the efficacy of these sort of interventions. And you're now in a larger phase trial, is that correct? Yes. Our pilot study, we had uh, 21 uh, caregivers in an attention control group when we had 19 in the task group. And so that was like the first run of the intervention uh, to really look at the feasibility of it uh, and the satisfaction. Do the caregivers like it? Do they find it useful? Um, we collected both quantitative and qualitative data where we had actual quotes from family members. For example, one of our family caregivers said that she felt like she was a superhero and she was going to provide care for her husband even if it killed her. And, but it almost killed her. Um, so she said what she really liked about our program was that we forced her to also take a look at her own needs and how to balance those as well, um, and that she felt like she was receiving attention to take care of her own health needs. Um, so basically, we collected a lot of um, satisfaction ratings. We had also comments and quotes directly from the caregivers about what they thought. Um, we also looked at efficacy trends. We couldn't prove efficacy in our pilot um, because it was a small pilot. There were small numbers, but we did look at effect sizes and we looked at trends in our outcome measures. And what we found was that after the eight weekly calls, family caregivers begin to experience more stress again after the calls were over. So that um, provided us rationale for adding a booster session a, mo a month later just to check back with the caregiver, reinforce the skills that they had learned. So we So used... you really think about these in terms of dose, just like a medicine mm -hmm. almost. You know, yeah. how often do you need it? How long does the intervention need to last? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we also tracked costs in our pilot because we didn't want to build an intervention that was extremely expensive for healthcare and that would not be realistic in terms of, of um, 
potential reimbursement someday down the line. And we found that our task program with our eight weekly calls from the nurse cost only $421. Wow. And so when you think about the benefits of having eight telephone, uh, targeted telephone follow-up calls that really teach skill building that only cost $421 in total. And that includes mailing the, the binder out to the caregivers. It includes the time that we took training the, the nurses on how to deliver the program. Uh, it also accounted for the caregivers' time that they spent on the phone, so it was all costed out. Um, so we used that, all of that preliminary data in uh, a grant application to the National Institute for Nursing Research. And we were funded with an R01, uh, which totaled uh, close to $1.9 million, um, which allowed us to test our program um, in a larger sample with 254 caregivers. Now, is that work completed, or is that work still going on? We have uh, recently finished data collection of our one-year follow-up data. So we, are, we have completed data collection, and we are currently in the process of analyzing our results. Uh, so we're looking not only at our outcome measures, but we're also, which includes depressive symptoms of the caregiver, um, their life changes, how their lives have changed, um, unhealthy days, so we're looking at the health of the caregiver, as well as some of the tasks and things that they provide. Does our program uh, improve based, you know, compared to an attention control group where um, the caregivers just receive more of um, active listening and, and a brochure? Um, so we have to compare it with with what we call an attention control group. We call it our information support and referral group. So that group actually benefited as well. It's just they didn't have the structured materials that the task intervention had. So in both cases, in the attention control group and the, the experimental group, they're still getting more than most than what's in caregivers practice. would get in practice. Absolutely. So assuming that the results of the larger study sort of follow the trend of the pilot and that you get favorable results, talk to me about what you envision might be ways in which this particular intervention that was that was developed by you and your team may be implemented in practice. Sure. Um, I've been involved in writing a few scientific statements with the American Heart Association, American Stroke Association, and um, a lot of the recommendations are to to, and in fact, one statement uh, published by Miller and colleagues in 2010 looked at rehab of the stroke survivor across settings. And the caregiver portion really emphasized the need for family caregivers to be part of the interdisciplinary team, the need for uh, assessing the individual needs of the family caregiver and having telephone follow-up calls to help them adjust to their new situation, um, being the stroke. Um, so, and, and then also to provide more attention to the health needs of the caregiver themselves, not just focusing only on the patient. Um, then, uh, since then, I've also uh, published with a group of colleagues a scientific statement that asks, what kind of interventions would be best uh, in this population? And uh, again, we found that providing information alone or a support group alone is not all that helpful in uh, helping family caregivers, that it's providing the information and the support 
but also mainly um, providing the skill building, those problem solving skills, those the stress management techniques, those those parts of the intervention are, are most important. In practice settings, they're being encouraged more and more to refer to the guidelines and adhere to the recommendations being provided uh, by the literature, by organizations such as the American Heart, American Stroke Association. Also, uh, in the Joint Commission, also reviews criteria for stroke center certification. And they also have a strong focus on patient and family education. So I believe that the TASS program, should it uh, also show favorable results in our larger trial, will have the evidence behind it from which um, may be a solution for um, healthcare institutions to adopt such a follow-up program, um, you know, that's uh, driven by the nurses who then train the family caregivers how to uh, provide care not only for the patient but for themselves after stroke. Well, and I can think as healthcare systems take more people at risk and have a, a larger responsibility for the financial implications of things like stroke, mm -hmm. making sure that caregivers are healthy and able to meet the needs of the survivors is not only the right thing to do, but it's also really important for you know the economics and the bottom mm -hmm. line. Tell me a little bit about how Indiana University School of Nursing positioned you, you know, or, or supported this work and how, how it works here. How, uh, doing this sort of interventional research, how does it work and what kind of environment is IU in which to do this? Sure. Well, Indiana University School of Nursing provides a very research-intensive environment here, and I've had many mentors uh, within the school primarily, but also outside of the school as well to, to promote my research. Um, as a uh, I was actually a doctoral student, received my PhD here from Indiana University School of Nursing, and um, had a number of mentors uh, who then, after I became a faculty member and assistant professor, um, really helped me think about my program of research and how to develop it to the point to where I could get to delivering a program for family members. Um, Dr. Joan Austin, for one, uh, was a strong mentor of mine. She's Professor Emeritus here at Indiana University School of Nursing. And she was the one who really, truly helped me um, think about not only how to um, theoretically test a model to look at what factors are associated with caregiver stress and well-being, um, but to also reach out and do the qualitative work that I needed with the family members, uh, you know, to really build a program that is derived specifically from them and not just some idea that I came up with. Uh, but within the school, the research infrastructure uh, and the faculty here and the support uh, uh, from the research center has, has been key in, in my success. Is there anything we didn't ask or we didn't talk about that you want to make sure that we do? Again, caregivers are the hidden patients, and if we don't take care of them, they, they're going to get stressed out. They're not going to be able to provide care, and caregiver stress is really a leading cause of long-term institutionalization. So to keep people healthy in the home setting uh, and to uh, really recognize all the work that these family members do in our health care system is, is just key, uh, and that's why I, I just love this work so much. Well, thank you, Dr. Chamberlain Backus, Professor and Chair of the Department of Science of Nursing Care at the IU School of Nursing. Thanks for this extraordinary work and for your time. Okay, great. Thank you so much.
This podcast is a production of the Indiana University School of Nursing. For more information, visit nursing.iu.edu. This podcast is copyright 2015 by the trustees of Indiana University.